This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has ruled that those being held in Guantanamo Bay can, in fact, challenge their status, thus giving them access to American courts. Tim Lynch, the director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice, comments. The issue was whether or not the prisoners being held down in Guantanamo can get a hearing before an impartial federal judge. The Bush administration has been relentless in trying to keep set up these prison camps, take prisoners in the war on terror, but then cut the judiciary out of the picture. They do not want federal judges to be hearing claims by prisoners that are saying, you know, mistakes were made in our cases. And the prisoners, through the writ of habeas corpus, have been saying, we need to have our day in court to argue that a mistake has been made in our case. So the issue is whether or not the courts can hear these types of claims. How relevant is the issue of citizenship? Citizenship is a big factor for many of the justices. Um, For the conservatives on the court, such as Justice Scalia, he says if you're an American citizen, the Bush administration cannot deny you the writ of habeas corpus. So you will get into court even if the president labels you an enemy combatant. But he draws this sharp distinction between citizens and non-citizens. So for the non-citizens that were uh, at issue in the case uh, this week down in Guantanamo, he he was saying that the writ of habeas corpus does not apply to them. I think he's incorrect about that. But for some of these justices, citizen versus non-citizen is is the key factor. How credible is the claim that these people are prisoners of war? Well, they're clearly prisoners of war in the sense that uh, they're not uh, being brought into ordinary federal court to be charged with crimes, terrorism-type offenses. Offenses. They've been picked up in various places in Afghanistan. Uh, we have prison camps in Iraq. We have prison camps in Afghanistan. We have uh, the facility down in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, the president... Uh, has said that they're terrorists, they're enemy combatants, and he's going to hold on to them as long as the war lasts. So then the question becomes, if they're not going to be charged with crimes in federal court, are there any legal protections, uh, safeguards in place? Because the president has also said the Geneva Conventions don't apply to these prisoners. So the prisoners and their attorneys have been basically saying, we need to be able to get into court to make a claim that, you know, our guy was picked up by mistake. We want to be able to make that case before an independent, impartial judge. And that's the gist of this case. And the, and the Supreme Court said, yes, you are going to be able to get into federal court to make that case. Whether or not the judge agrees with you is a separate matter. Just because they get into federal court does not mean these people are going to start being released. It just means a federal judge is going to hear both sides. And if he agrees with the government, they're just going to be sent back to the facility down in Cuba. But if he agrees with the prisoner that, you know, there's no evidence that they've done anything wrong, or it's based on fourth-hand hearsay that somebody said that somebody said that somebody said he's a terrorist, if that's all there is, then the judges are probably going to release some prisoners on the basis of flimsy evidence. The evidence that would be needed to present to uh, a judge to make a determination about whether or not they, these people ought to continue to be held or be given trials or be judged in, in some manner. I mean, to what extent is that information that ought to be kept secret? Well, the Supreme Court said these types of issues 
are going to be resolved by the district courts on a case-by-case basis. Um, so they're basically, um, first of all, their habeas claims are not automatically going to be heard in court. They can file a habeas petition. Everybody who has an attorney after this ruling will file a habeas petition. But that doesn't mean if there's 250 prisoners down there, there's going to be 250 hearings in the next couple of weeks. The courts are going to have discretion as to which petitions they are going to hear and entertain and to set a hearing for. So that's going to willow it down a little bit. And then the courts are going to be basically saying in the cases that they do hear, they're going to turn to the government and they're going to say, why are we holding this man? Show us some evidence. Um, in some instances, you know, they're going to have, they may have affidavits from soldiers or they may have some soldiers testifying. If they have soldiers testifying, it's going to resemble what happens a lot in our criminal courts. If the police officers say, well, we saw this guy do this, that, and the other thing, and the other guy says, I didn't do that, the judges more often than not give the benefit of the doubt to the police, and they're going to do the same thing to the military. So there's a lot of overwrought comments being made about the simple fact that these are going into federal court, that federal judges are now going to be releasing them, there's impossible burden on the government. I think a lot of that is uh, exaggerated. And uh, the courts are basically just going to do some sorting out. They're going to say, what evidence do you have to hold this man? If they have some evidence, they're going to be held. Uh, If they do not have anything at all or something that's extremely weak, then uh, the judges may release a few prisoners. How do we keep intelligence from being made public in a court of law just on the basis of these uh, hearings related to habeas claims? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, It's something that is going to be sorted out in the next year or so as federal district courts uh, hear these habeas petitions. Um, In some cases, they may uh, allow just the attorneys or the judges to look at the evidence without revealing that to the prisoner. Uh, But that is going to be worked out over over the next year or so. Okay, because... There's that strange balance that has to be struck between not having secret evidence presented uh, on trial, something that uh, our founders were well aware of, and having the right of a prisoner to be able to confront the charges against them. Right. It's a delicate balancing act, and 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 this is what the district courts uh, are going to have to confront in, in the next year. The Supreme Court said we're not going to get into that level of detail just yet. We're going to allow the district courts to sort out these these competing claims. And that's another reason why the, the district courts are going to have some discretion about the habeas petitions that they agree to accept. So they're going to be looking at the paperwork filed by the attorneys on their behalf to see what evidence that they're showing as to why you know, they claim that they're you know, picked up by mistake. So they're going to be looking to see if they have a colorable claim, first of all, before they even accept the case. And then if the government comes back and says, well, we have this classified information, this is this is what the real reasons why we're holding on to it, then the district court is going to have to sort that out. From your perspective, what is the difference between this war and previous wars with regard to uh, habeas corpus? Yeah, it's a common question that's coming up that we didn't give habeas corpus during World War II when we had prisoners even here in the United States. The key difference is that in our past wars, the enemy wore uniforms. So it was easy to sort out who was fighting with the enemy and who was not. When you we captured somebody in a uniform, by virtue of the prisoner 
wearing the enemy uniform. He was identifying himself as I'm fighting with the opposing army. So we could easily route these people into prisoner of war camps to be held for the duration of the conflict. Unfortunately, in this non-state conflict that we're in now with Al-Qaeda, they're not wearing uniforms, so it puts the government in the position of they're constantly going to be accusing somebody who, from outward appearances, seems to be a civilian. They're going to be saying, no, you're actually a terrorist. So it makes this sorting process much more difficult, and that's why habeas corpus comes into play. The executive is still going to make that initial decision as to who gets arrested and initially locked up because they think he's a suspected terrorist. But then we have to have this writ of habeas corpus to come in to allow the people who think that they have mistakenly you know, been apprehended uh, to get into court to make their case before an independent judge that a mistake has been made. Uh, a habeas corpus action would have been futile for a German soldier or for a Japanese sailor who was captured because he'd be filing a habeas corpus petition and the judge would say, okay, you were captured in uniform, what's your argument? And he really wouldn't have anything to say because he would have to be saying, you can't hold me. But it was, you know, it's just a common practice during wartime that you, when you're not killing the enemy, you are taking them captive and you can hold them for the duration of the conflict. So the, it's the key difference is the enemy wore uniforms and the other thing is the open-ended nature of this conflict. Um, there's not going to be a peace treaty with the terrorists in the foreseeable future. So that's the other thing that has prompted the Supreme Court to get involved in this case now. They said it's been six years now that some of these prisoners have been down there. It's time for a federal court to start hearing the claims of those who say that they've been picked up by accident. Again, it doesn't mean that they're going to be released. All it means is that a federal judge is going to give them a hearing. And if the judge agrees with the government, they're going right back to the prison facility in Guantanamo. And it sort of gets at Shortly after September 11th, President Bush said this is going to be a new kind of war, but we need to have a serious critical evaluation of what constitutes a war, especially in the, the open-ended nature of this conflict. If this is allowed to be defined as a war, there's a lot of stuff that goes along with that. Right, and when he said it was going to be a new kind of war, he didn't make it clear at that point that he was asserting the power to arrest any person in the world Uh and his argument, the argument of his lawyers, is that he could arrest anybody in the world. It doesn't matter whether he's overseas on a battlefield or even here in the United States. It doesn't matter if he's a citizen or a non-citizen. This is what the president's lawyers have argued, that once the president locks somebody up and calls them an enemy combatant, that's it. The judges and the judiciary cannot, what they said, second-guess that ruling. That kind of reads the habeas corpus provision out of the Constitution. And this is what the Supreme Court was coming back and saying, look, you are the commander-in-chief. You get to take prisoners, but uh, your powers are not unlimited. The, the judiciary is going to come in uh, via the writ of habeas corpus to, to put a check on uh, executive power. And, and that's really the, a sensible reading of the Constitution and is a sensible way of sorting out these uh, conflicting claims between prisoners and the government that uh, is fighting the war on terror. Tim Lynch is director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. You can watch a recent Cato event discussing the case of Boumediene v. Bush and read the related legal brief at cato.org.